Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Dr. Mikel Del Rosario. I'm the Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on the show today is the cultural background of the Passion Week. I have two guests via Zoom today. The first guest is Dr. Terry Moore. Terry is an assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Criswell College. And she is also a fellow THM and PhD grad from DTS. Welcome, Terry. Hi. Good to be here. So great to have you on the show. Uh, our second guest also via Zoom is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament at DTS. Great to have you back on the show, Daryl. I'm, I'm glad to be on the table for a change. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl is somebody you've seen an awful lot on the table, and especially when it comes to uh, Jesus topics. I love having him discuss all things Jesus with us. And so we're just going to dive right into our material today, beginning with Jesus's Jewish examination. And as I've said before, I can never get away with calling it a trial in front of Daryl, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, let's just set the scene as we're thinking about moving into the Passion Week and moving into Jesus' um, examination where uh, he is standing before the Jewish leadership you know, uh, even skeptical scholars will admit that some kind of meeting had to take place to get Jesus before Pilate. And this scene that we read about in Mark 14, in Matthew 26, in Luke 22, um, it fits the idea that Jesus was involved in a temple controversy, uh, which is where the whole conversation began in Mark. Even E.P. Sanders and Bart Ehrman agree that Jesus was involved in a temple controversy. But Daryl, how would you respond to the common objection that there are some peculiarities about this meeting that don't seem like a legit Jewish trial? For example, supposedly trials couldn't be held at night or in the midst of cultural holidays. What, what would you say to that? Well, there are a variety of things that are going on. Most of these rules obviously apply to a trial where, um, in a normal trial, a verdict is able to be given with an appropriate sanction tied to the verdict. In other words, um, consequences for the verdict if, if, I mean, obviously if one's innocent, one's let go, but if one's guilty, one's got to be able to carry out the punishment for the crime. and. Uh, the Jewish leadership, at least in terms of the goal that they were working for, which was to take Jesus to Pilate and have Pilate issue a formal judgment, doesn't apply here. So I prefer describing this as an examination rather than a trial, and I also prefer to compare it to the kind of like what happens with a grand jury when the prosecution gathers the evidence. It's kind of two steps put together. Prosecution gathers the evidence and puts it before a grand jury, and the grand jury issues the formal charge that then allows the, the proceeding to go to trial. Um, and, and so this is kind of the prosecutors organizing their case and getting ready uh, to take it to Pilate. And here's the other thing that's important to the background. They really need to get this right. Um, the worst thing that could have happened would have been to take Jesus to Pilate to present their case and Pilate say, you know what, I don't think you have a case here. I'm not going to issue a judgment. I'm going to um, let Jesus go. Imagine the public relations result of that exercise uh, if it were 
to have failed. Mm-hmm. So they really needed to get this right. They needed to put together a charge that Pilate would be responsive to and to be sensitive to it at that level. And so some of the to and fro that you see in the actual exchange about getting the testimony right and getting the topic that they would pursue right is reflecting this need to be sure that what they get before Pilate uh, will result in some kind of a charge from him. And of course, the charge that they are looking for is they want Rome to be the one who is responsible for Jesus' death, which gives them a buffer um, on responsibility for what takes place. A buffer, by the way, that still lives in the way this event gets talked about uh, even today. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people who will cite the Mishnah and some of the, the legal um, language in there. Can we backtrack that to the time of Jesus, or is that a move that's not really um, a responsible one to make? Well, it's often hard to know, but um, this tradi- these traditions tend to be pretty conservative. They're, they don't g- get changed unless there's something that causes it to change in the interim. Yes. Um, so. Um, My objection is not so much to the way the Mishnah says a trial should be conducted, should it be conducted. In fact, there came a point where where they um, weren't conducting trials in the kind of sense they were talking about because they only had religious power. They didn't have any social, political power. Mm Um, so th- I think these rules are a way of expressing the per- showing the pursuit of justice in the midst of such proceedings. They would have tended to be conservative, I think, in nature and preserved. Uh, and so my own sense is, is that the actual violations of a formal trial would have been something that would have been around, but I think the question here is whether this is a formal trial. There's also another mm-hmm. observation to make, and that is exceptions to the rule were allowed in cases of unusual set of circumstances. And the unusual set of circumstances they had here is they had to have a hearing in order to get Jesus to Pilate while Pilate was in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So, um, So there's a time limit, there's a time pressure on what's going on here, which explains both the at night and also the festival time that we're dealing with simultaneously that normally wouldn't allow for this kind of a proceeding to take place. But they're trying to get this done while they can get Pilate to do it, and they're hoping to get Pilate to do it during the week that they're there. And he's there, um, so uh, it's a matter of. Uh, uh, this sounds like something I do with my office all the time. It's a matter of scheduling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I really like your idea of the uh, American grand jury kind of uh, approach, where they're trying to find something that they can take to pilot. Uh, Marcus Borg even agrees that uh, it was probably not a trial, and so I, I, I like that um, direction that you've uh, you've proposed and. When we get to the actual content now of the examination that Jesus has in front of the high priest in Mark 14, which I did some work on in my dissertation as well, and Daryl, you were uh, such a help in this this particular area of my work. Um, The high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And I want to transition over to talking to Terry now about this. Um, Terry, what does it mean to be the Christ, the Son of the Blessed in this culture? Um, well, you've got uh, 
a statement that's then described and explained by the second statement, right? Uh, so the high priest is at this point a little bit frustrated with Jesus, right? Because he's not answering his questions. And so he's what well, he gets to the point. Jesus isn't answering his questions. He's not getting um, the evidence he wants from the other witnesses he's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he looks at Jesus. He says, uh, are, are you this person that, that, that people are saying that you've claimed to be. Uh, and so Christ is um, is connected to Messiah, right? And so those two terms mean the same thing. Um, and so messianic expectations among Jewish people at this time period uh, were somewhat flexible. You know, you had a lot of different uh, groups that had different expectations, but the core of that was uh, someone in the line of David, um, who was somewhat of an eschatological king. Uh, so there were some expectations um, that this person would uh, bring in a new time for Israel, uh, would bring in renewal. And as we know, a lot of people expected that that renewal would bring an end to pagan rule in Judea. Uh, but when he says uh, the son of the blessed one, of course, he is not wanting to use uh, the the name of God, because that's something, you know, that you would be on trial for if you had used the name of God. Um, and so um, he's basically saying, are you the Messiah, the son of God? And so those two titles, uh, Messiah and son of God, um, had come to both be known to be referring to the same type of figure. Um, and so that's what he's asking mm-hmm. Jesus. Are you this figure um, that we have come to be expecting and looking forward to? Are you claiming to be uh, the one? Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. making that claim? Um, and that's kind of the linchpin. You know, uh, Dr. Bach was talking about um, how um, uh, they're wanting to get Jesus to say certain things that would then perk the ear of Pilate. Well, if Jesus says yes to this, uh, that's going to perk Pilate's ear to Mm. hear somebody saying that. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. So Messiah at minimum, but there is this idea of the future eschatological king that had been uh, people had been waiting for, and that kind of yes. ties in with with Psalm one ten and how Jesus mm-hmm. now responds. Um, Daryl, get your take on this. Jesus answer, I mm-hmm. am said Jesus. So at minimum, yes. But then he adds something else, and he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, or the right hand of power. Well, help us understand some of the Jewish texts surrounding this idea of Son of Man. Jesus is bringing together some Old Testament stuff, but there's also uh, texts outside the Bible that are coming to play here. Help us understand what's going on. Yeah, um, so the question was, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Son of Blessed One is a circumlocution, as Terry said, about the way to refer to God without <sighs> utilizing His name or bringing up the sacredness of the name. So, um, so he's answered that question, and it's important to understand that Son of God itself is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be mm-hmm. son of God or son of God, <laughs> uh, and, and, and so uh, and, and at, at Caesarea Philippi, remember when mm-hmm. when the disciples are asked, "Who do you say the Son of Man is?" or "Who do you say that I am?" Parallel asking because Jesus is the Son of Man. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer in Mark is, uh, "You are the Christ." 
in Luke, it's you are the Christ of God, and then in Matthew, it's you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, so bringing in the second title alongside, but equated with Messiah, because Messiah is seen as having a special relationship with God out of 2 Samuel 7 uh, and the Davidic covenant. So, that, so the question was about kingship. Uh, the perking of the ears that was alluded to a while back is about the claim to be king. Now, Rome, the Roman view is, well, we appoint the kings around here. Uh, people don't self-appoint, and they certainly don't appoint in a way that doesn't involve us because we believe in law. You follow our law or we'll put you in order. And so, um, so that's the way this is proceeding. Mm -hmm. So Jesus answers in, in uh, Mark, it says, I am. In the other Gospels, it says, you have said so, or a roundabout mm -hmm. way of saying, yes, but not quite in the way that you're asking it, is really what, what that reply mm -hmm. is indicating. But the, the trigger that seals the deal is what he says next. He could have just stopped there, said yes, mm -hmm. probably would have been good enough, mm -hmm. but he uh, presses the point. And he presses the point by putting together uh, fundamentally two passages. Um, Psalm 110.1, uh, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which is a declaration of a shared authority that exists between God and this one who functions as his vice regent on earth, the messianic figure. By the way, that messianic expectation that Terry was talking about comes from texts, not just Old Testament texts, from, from uh, extra-biblical texts of the Second Temple period, Psalms of Solomon 17 and 18, which says Messiah is going to do two things. He's going to conquer the nations, but he's also going to purge and establish righteousness in Israel. So renewal, as she said, <laughs> alongside this conquering of the nations. And then uh, a section of First Enoch, First Enoch 37 to 71, called the Similitudes, which has this figure of the Son of Man. So the Son of Man doesn't come from uh, Psalm 110.1, it comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And the Son of Man is simply an idiom that means a human being, like uh, son of David, uh, son of Jane, Jane's son, David's son, a human son. That's what Son of Man means in its basic meaning. But this Son of Man is doing something that humans don't normally do, and that is riding the clouds. Okay, so Texas, we understand rodeos. Uh, so, so this is this is someone riding the clouds. It's not a normal thing. And in the Old Testament, only God rides the clouds. Mm -hmm. So this is a human being doing God stuff and getting authority from the Ancient of Days, uh -huh. which would picture God. So basically, what Jesus is saying to the audience is, "I'm the defendant here, and I'm on trial." You can do to me whatever you want, but I'm here to tell you that God's going to vindicate me one day. Mm -hmm. I will go to his right hand, and I will exercise judgment authority over you one day. So I may be the defendant now, but I'm not going to be the defendant later. Mm -hmm. You will be mm -hmm. the defendants later. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't like that answer for two reasons. One, the authority that Jesus was claiming for himself. And second, the idea that Jesus could park next to God and share his presence and his authority and the exercise of his judgment, etc. All that was uh, potentially offensive 
um, to the Jewish audience. And so the reaction is, at least as Mark portrays it, is uh, the high priest rips his clothes, says, we've heard the blasphemy, uh, what shall we do? Now, the question in the background is an additional one, which is, did the Jews actually contemplate the possibility that someone could conceivably sit with God in heaven? Because what Jesus is doing is, you may do with me what you want, but um, God's going to vindicate me, and you'll be able to write me later at www.rightandofgod.com. <laughs> and um, and so, uh, so what do we do with this claim? Can someone sit and park with God in heaven? It'd be one thing to be in God's presence in heaven, to worship Him in heaven. It's another thing to sit with Him in heaven and share His authority. And actually, there are texts in the Second Temple Jewish period that do speak to this, both pro and con. Some people contemplating the possibility, other people denying that it was, was possible. Um, the pro texts include Exegoge of Ezekiel, uh, line 67 to 82, in which Moses has a dream. And the dream is of being invited to sit on the thrones of heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, there's only one verse where thrones is plural in heaven, and that's Daniel 7, the Son of Man text. So that's interesting. Uh, and Moses doesn't understand the dream, so he goes to his dream interpreter, Jethro, uh, who does understand these things. And basically, Jethro says, um, this is the kind of authority you're going to wield through the plague. So it's a reflective portrayal of Moses' authority during the Exodus when the plagues are being exercised. And it is seen as a midrash or an interpretation of Exodus 7.1, which says, I will make you God to Pharaoh uh, when, when Moses is being called uh, to, um, you know, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Uh, the English translations often waffle here by saying, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. But in the uh -huh. Hebrew, there's no qualifier like. I will make you God to Pharaoh. What it's saying is, when you speak, you are so representative of where God is coming from that it's as good as God speaking. That's why you get the like in the translation. Mm -hmm. They don't want people to confuse Moses with being God. Mm -hmm. But actually, the, con the point is, your association with God's revelation is so direct that, that you represent God, and you can be pictured as being seated with God in heaven. So that's, that's a yes vote, but it's a very qualified yes. It's a rhetorical yes, if you will. Mm -hmm. In First Enoch, you get a son of man who's seated with God in heaven and who helps to exercise judgment, prerogatives, and authority, etc. He is this human being who exercises divine-like authority, and that's the portrait you get out of First Enoch. That's also a yes vote. Now, there are two no votes in the Jewish materials. Uh, one of them is from Rabbi Akiba, who's a second century AD rabbi, so it's a little later, but it shows the attitude. And that is when Akiba uh, posits that David might be able to sit with God in heaven, uh, the sages, and that's usually the wise group who has the right answer, um, say to him, how long will you profane the Shekinah? Will you, it's a, profaning is, is taking that which is sacred and, and defiling it in one way or another. How long will you profane the Shekinah? So this is a charge about this idea is something that shouldn't be expressed. So that's a no vote. And then the other no vote comes from 3rd Enoch. 
Third, Enoch. Enoch is being given a tour of heaven by an angel named Metatron. Now, this is not a Ninja Turtle, all right? Uh, but, uh, so that's... Or a, or a Transformer. Uh, yeah, Transformer. A, a transformer or whatever. You know, this is so the four and five-year-olds can appreciate this, mm -hmm. this podcast. And... Uh, uh, and he's giving a tour of heaven, and in the midst of the tour, he refers to himself as the lesser Yahweh. And I like to make the comparison to uh -huh. the Whopper, and then there's the Whopper Jr., okay? So Metatron's not the Whopper Jr. in heaven. Uh, and the way we know this is the way God responds to that self-description by Metatron is to invite him in and punish him for having the suggestion that he could even compare himself in some way to Yahweh. So that's a negative vote. So the point is, there were, in some segments of Judaism, the contemplation of the possibility that maybe someone had enough power, authority, or connection of God to be associated mm -hmm. with being seated with Him in heaven, but mm -hmm. there were other people who said, no way. Now, we have Sadducees in the audience, we're talking about background here, we have Sadducees mm -hmm. in the audience, and the Sadducees don't like these additional traditions. In fact, they are hesitant on even the concept of angels and resurrection. Mm -hmm. so, so the fact that this council that's been gathered together is predominantly Sadducean means they're more likely to have a no vote in this conversation that might be going on in Judaism than a yes vote. But even Jews could contemplate, well, maybe you, David, maybe the Son of Man to come you know, maybe that could be maybe a high angelic figure, perhaps, but not a Galilean street preacher. Yeah, not this guy from Galilee. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that just doesn't compute at all. Yeah. So they said no. And, the, and now the tension of the event is set before us that runs through the rest of the story. And that is there are two options for what's going on mm -hmm. as Jesus goes to the cross. He's claiming exaltation and a vindication to come from God that shows who he is, or he's blaspheming. Those are the only two options on the table. There's no middle option that says, oh, he's a religious great who just inspires us, something mm -hmm. like that. That option is off the table. But mm -hmm. what they do is they take the religious charge, blasphemy, translate it into a political charge. He claimed mm -hmm. to be a king that Rome didn't appoint, and then he said, We've got our evidence. It's self-confessed, which is even more interesting. Mm -hmm. The testimony that sends Jesus to the cross is the testimony Jesus himself gives, which mm -hmm. shows how committed Jesus was to going to the cross. Mm -hmm. and, and with that in place, they put together their dossier and their case. They gather their uh, folders, and they say, mm -hmm. it's time to see Pilate. And with yep. that, I can hand it off back to you because wow. Harry's coming in in a major way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, uh, if Daryl has whet your appetite to dive into this scene, uh, he has an mm. amazing work called Blasphemy and Exaltation mm -hmm. in Judaism, and yep. we'll link to that in the show notes so that you can check that out. Um, mm -hmm. I love the all the different pieces that come together. It's it's so deep and so profound to look into, um, mm -hmm. especially I was struck by the first Enoch uh, connections mm -hmm. where those who see the Son of Man are the ones who are judged. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like... You're telling us, we, the representatives of God on earth, you're going to judge us? I mean, mm. is that the offense that became blasphemy? Daryl, there are a couple of options there. What do you think about the... That's the, 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 the offense is twofold, actually. One, it's the claim to be able to share the presence of God, who gets to sit with God in heaven, which for someone like a Sadducee would be um, inconceivable. 
And then secondly, it's the idea that you're putting the the so-called representatives of God on trial and saying you're subject to God, you're not supposed to speak ill of your leaders. That comes out of Exodus. Uh -huh. So there's a twofold uh -huh. religious violation uh -huh. here that's triggered by uh -huh. Jesus' response if, this is the big if, he's not who he claims to be. Yeah. Right. That's right. The gamble. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the transition now into Jesus before Pilate. Daryl alluded to this a little bit, but I wonder, mm -hmm. Terry, if you could unpack it a little more. How did mm -hmm. the Jewish leadership translate this claim of uh, Jesus being this apocalyptic son of man with a role in the judgment, a religious claim? Right. How did they translate that into something Rome would care at all about? Very carefully, right? Um, I often compare it to, um, you know, when I am maybe making an appeal to my health insurance, right? So if I, if they've, if they denied one of my claims and I'm appealing something to my health insurance, I use really careful words, you know, mm. I, I use, I use lawyer words. I use things like bad faith and uh, due diligence and, and those types of words, right? Because I uh -huh. want, I want them to trigger things that are going to make them go, Oh, I better pay attention and, and maybe uh, pay attention to this case. Um, and so they kind of, they kind of leave out, um, the more details of their religious dispute with, with what Jesus is saying. Um, some of the things that make them tear their clothes, like, who the son of man is and why that's important to them. They don't mention that they focus laser focus in on, he claimed to be King of the Jews. Um, and that's basically what they present um, mm -hmm. because they know that that's what Pilate is going to care about. Mm -hmm. um, here's a guy who's claiming to be King of the Jews and they know that Pilate has passed uh, Pilate and most of the Roman governors in Judea already have a history of taking anyone who claimed to be king of the Jews and either executing them, putting them in jail, or otherwise defeating them in battle because most others that had claimed to be king of the Jews had a band of armed men behind them. Um, and so, yeah, they focused in on that claim. Um, his, his, he, they, they kind of translated it for a pilot. They mm -hmm. um, said, yeah, he's claiming to be Christ, King of the Jews, um, and presented it that way. It was very simple yeah. um, in that way. So when we move to Jesus' Roman examination, the, these group of Jewish leaders, they bring him to Pilate. And in Luke 23, we read that they're saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes mm. payment of taxes to Caesar. He oh. claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, yeah. had others recently made claims like this to be Messiah, to be king of the Jews? How are they different from Jesus? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's several things to talk about there. Um, always follow the money, right? So they brought mm. in, even even brought in the taxes issue. Yes. <laughs> He's telling people not to pay their taxes. Um, that just brings in a whole other element to it, right? If you mm -hmm. if you tell if you tell Pilate that. Um, so yeah, there were a, a few others that Josephus actually tells us about. Um, and so probably since uh, especially since 86. Uh, so after Herod the Great died, uh, his uh, kingdom was split between several of his sons. The son that took over Judea, Jerusalem, and, and that area uh, was particularly 
uh, let's say particularly like his father, Herod the Great, um, and cruel and not a great ruler and actually bad enough that Rome was like, you can't do this anymore. We're not going to let you stay in charge. And that's when Rome took over uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and sent in their own governors um, what we would call governors, they then called prefects. And so that's how we get a pilot as prefect. Hmm. Prefect. And so from that time period, there was just a lot of unrest um, and a lot of Jewish groups that were saying, mm, we don't like the idea of direct Roman rule. We don't like a Roman prefect in charge of us. We don't like Roman soldiers in our land. And so um, you would have what I call pop-up messiahs. Um, mm -hmm. So um, uh, a guy would pop up and he would say, hey, I think I'm Messiah. And 50 mm. or 100 men would join his uh, band of merry men um, and try to fight the, the Roman um, soldiers there. And whoever was prefect at the time would um, either fight them, meet them in battle, and the one claiming to be Messiah would be killed in battle or arrested and executed, um, crucified. Um, and that would kind of be the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, so the obvious difference is um, Jesus's disciples were not fighting Rome militarily. Mm -hmm. Jesus never claimed to be um, trying to raise an army. Um and that was never part of his mission or part of anything he was doing in Galilee or Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So that would be key. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and Pilate could tell that. Pilate could tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how Jesus makes that if-then statement. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would be fighting you right now. Yes, yeah, but it's nobody was not. fighting. Hence, there's not a band of soldiers, you know, yeah. trying to take you down right now. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um, Daryl, help us understand if the Messiah or the future Davidic king, if the idea was that he would restore the kingdom of Israel, was that the threat to Rome? Could that be seen as a kind of treason to treason to um, to threaten the emperor like that? I mean, Jesus is sent to the cross because he is judged to be guilty of sedition, claiming to be a king that Rome did not appoint. I mean, Pilate had a variety of responsibilities. He was to keep the peace. He was to collect the taxes. He was to look after Caesar's interests in the area. And then he was to appoint the high priest uh, every year. 
So uh, this actually touches, in one way or another, all four of those responsibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the pressure that we see the Jewish leadership pushing Pilate to exercise is a pressure that says, you're looking after Caesar's interests, uh, you're here mm -hmm. to keep the peace, this guy is disruptive, um, he's claiming to be a king that uh, Caesar didn't appoint. Um, now, this is an outright lie. He tells us not to pay our taxes. That isn't what Jesus actually yeah. did. And um, you appoint Caiaphas to help you in this area, and Caiaphas almost for sure was in the room um, bringing mm -hmm. this, uh, bringing Jesus to Pilate. So, so all four of these areas are being, being touched, and the issue is sedition. Um, and and whether or not Pilate is going to basically do his job, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. that's the way it's framed. Uh, she said, uh, Terry said earlier, this is carefully framed. Yeah, it is. It's it's framed all around everything mm -hmm. that Pilate's supposed to be about. Now, from Pilate's perspective, this is important to think through. Pilate's hesitant initially. Why would he be hesitant? Mm -hmm. Well, he would be hesitant because he sees this Galilean street preacher in front of him. There's no army. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, he doesn't have any lieutenants or lieutenant mm -hmm. colonels around him, any generals around him, anything like that. There are no weapons involved. I mean, his he's got the 12. Uh, the 12, you know, might be nicknamed Fisherman and Co. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and so, you know, so he's got mm -hmm. that group around him. And... Um, Pilate sees no real threat. You, mm -hmm. This is going to challenge the power. I mean, do mm -hmm. I really have to waste my time with this? Right. My guess is that that's initially where he's coming from, and it's only the pressure that they put on him as the leadership and as the representative of the groups that he is trusting that cause him to respond mm -hmm. in the way that he does. I like to tell people, Pilate decided to dance with the date that he brought to the party. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, Caiaphas is someone he's appointed every year as high priest. He will continue to appoint him after Jesus is crucified. This is someone he's used to working with. So he's got this newbie in front of him on the one hand, or he's got Caiaphas, who he's trusted in this area for years already, who he continues to trust. And so he makes the decision that he makes. And, um, and then the view of Roman justice coming out of this is pretty interesting because in effect, Pilate has said, he's not guilty of the crime you're charging him with. I think he's innocent. But the sense of Roman justice you get coming out of this scene is, well, I think you're innocent, but I'm going to crucify you anyway, to which the response is, who would want a justice system like that? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So this is a critique of Rome in the midst of the passage about the injustice of Jesus' mm -hmm. death. Yep. Some scholars, liberals, will say, well, um, Rome is let off the hook. It's the Jewish leadership that's made to be yeah. the bad guys. But everyone's a bad guy just for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a lot of uh, he had a balancing act to to think about there. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not they cared about the religious side, there was you know there there was the crowd as well. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a time they they had a soldier executed for burning some religious text. Not that they cared anything about the religious text. They just didn't want the uproar from the crowd. You know, so mm -hmm. sometimes things like that could happen. Now, Terry, yeah, you've you know, done some. You know, it, it had they brought a religious charge to Pilate. He's guilty of blasting. Pilate would have said, well, that's interesting. I could care less. Yep. Right. Um, yeah, so, so that's why they didn't go that route. Um, uh, blasphemy to the Jewish God for a Roman ruler meant nothing. 
Nope. Right. So, um, so that can't go there. So yep. that's why you get the shift in, in charge. And of course, they're dealing with something that, in terms of claim, is true. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. I mean, mm -hmm. he marched right. into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, here's here's uh, what uh, evidence piece of evidence uh, A one. Mm -hmm. uh, he did that. So, but the, the issue is we're back to where we were, which is. Uh, it's a problem, it's blasphemy, it's sedition, but only if his claim is not true. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Yeah. So now, Terry, you've done some work mm -hmm. on Roman trials for non-citizens. We've talked mm -hmm. about a lot of cultural things here, but what's yeah. a, a cultural piece in this scene that most people tend to miss when we read it? Um, so one thing that I've looked at is, so um, if... If a citizen came to trial before Pilate, um, the rules that he had to follow and the things that he had to do, things were a lot more tighter. Um, he would have had procedures he had to follow. There were limitations. Of course, he couldn't have crucified uh, a citizen. Um, and he would have had uh, more rules regarding um, evidence and procedures. And then, of course, the citizen could have always appealed any decision that he made. Uh, now, of course, Jesus is not a, a Roman citizen, um, uh, so he's not a citizen of Rome. Like later in the New Testament, Paul is a Roman citizen, and so you see him using that in mm -hmm. many of his trials. So with a non-citizen in front of him, um, Pilate still follows uh, certain procedures, right? So he hears the evidence from Caiaphas. Um, uh, the trial seems to be somewhat public. Um, there's a crowd um, there's Caiaphas, there's other people. He does investigate the evidence, right? He asks Jesus questions. Um, he in interrogates him a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but other, other than that, Pilate has options. He's the governor. He's the Roman governor. I mean, he is, if you're thinking about who's the top dog in this area of the world right now, it's Pilate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he can do with this person what he wants to do. Um, and we, there's some interactions with Caiaphas, um, but it, the choice is his. Um, and I think that's why we see him having a little back and forth and the things that we've discussed. He's clearly looking at Jesus going, you're a, he, he looks at Jesus and says, you're a threat to Caiaphas and the religious leaders. You're not a threat to me. In any mm -hmm. real sense of the world, mm -hmm. of the word, he recognizes that Jesus is is not a threat to Roman power. Uh, Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. So I think Pilate saw the game that they were playing. Uh, but what we don't recognize about Pilate oftentimes is that while he in that region was the top dog, um, in the world of Roman power, he wasn't the top dog um, because he was, um, you know, we call it the equestrian rank. Uh, he wasn't a senator. Uh, so he was kind of a step down. And so to retain his power, he wanted the people above him in Rome. So Caesar or other senators to be impressed with how he was running things in Judea. Hmm. Um, so he's walking a tightrope of sorts. 
um, if he lets things get out of hand in Jerusalem and that gets back to Rome, then he loses his position like he did eventually lose his mm-hmm. position and get called back to Rome because he um, he got too violent. Um, mm. And uh, so if, if he lets that happen here uh, with Jesus and, and Caiaphas, if Caiaphas gets mad and sends a letter back to the emperor, then he's lost his position. So he's walking a tightrope in a really difficult position. Mm. Um, and so that's why I think you see him waffling. That's why I think you see him recognizing Jesus is innocent, but playing to the religious leaders and playing to the crowd to kind of keep things calm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of realities going on for him. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of political stuff in the background as yeah. well, not just Jewish yeah. cultural sensitivities, but also mm-hmm. uh, the political scene, the, the intrigue mm-hmm. that's going on. sounds like a, you know, like you a would movie. Make a good movie. Oh yeah. It would. Yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah. this is never included in these, these Jesus movies that get made, right? Even right. one of, one yeah. of the best ones that I've seen, the passion of the Christ had a little bit of that in there, yeah. but uh, what a, what a, an ancient courtroom drama kind of a feel would be amazing yeah. uh, to look into all the political intrigue that went on there. So then Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas, and you mentioned earlier he's one of the kids of the King Herod, Mm -hmm. Herod the Great, Herod number one, the the one we hear about during Mm -hmm. Christmas, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Mm -hmm. But this Herod was the guy who killed John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And so you've mentioned uh, a little bit about his relationship with the Jewish leadership. Why would he send Jesus off to Herod? I kind of think it's the same issue, right? I think he's, um, I think Pilate is going, oh, well, Herod's here. Maybe I can, maybe I can get him to make the decision. Um, and then I don't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, and, and it's, so Herod was in charge of Galilee. Um, and that's when he hears Jesus is from Galilee. Well, that's his jurisdiction. So let me let him make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if he can get Herod to make that decision, then it's off his hands. Um, and he didn't have to deal with it anymore. Um, so I think that's probably what was in Herod's mind. I mean, when mm-hmm. Pilate's mind, when he sent him to Herod. Um, yeah. yeah. So Pilate had the right to try Jesus himself, but he could yeah. uh, take the case off his hands, like you said, yeah. by giving him over to Herod yeah. Antipas to try. Yeah. Um, didn't work. Kind of, yeah. yeah. But, okay, so let's move now to the crucifixion. I know there's a lot more we could go into with these cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're right back to the king of the Jews again, because when Jesus Mm -hmm. is crucified, over his head there is the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. Now, what did that mean to Romans? What did that mean? Was it different Mm -hmm. what it meant to Jews? I mean, obviously it was a warning, right? But how how did Romans... How did the Romans see that? Right. So I, I think the Romans, especially the soldiers, um, they saw that mockingly, right? Um, and also to have it as the sign above the cross is this is what we do to people who claim to be the king. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're going to put this sign over your head, um, if you think you're the king of the Jews instead of uh, Caesar being the king of everyone, um, uh, this is what we do to king of kings. If, if, if you think that's who you are, then this is what we do. Right. Um, so, yeah, just like crucifixion served not only as punishment for the person being crucified, crucifixion was also warning to anyone else who thought you might want to try this. Um, mm-hmm. Here's here's what would happen to you. Uh, so crucifixion was obviously cruel and uh, an awful punishment, but uh, deterrent. Um, and so... Um, 
uh, and also a show of might. Like yeah. we can, we can do whatever we want. Um, we can do whatever we want in our territory. We can do whatever we want in your territory and your capital city and your sacred place. Uh, we are still in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that came in a lot of, you know, um, Daryl was talking about, you know, Pilate appointed the high priest. Um, Pilate also made the high priest come and ask him for their royal, their vestments that they wore for every festival, their clothing. Um, he kept their clothing. And so they would have to come and ask him for that. Uh, every time they um, had any sort of uh, festival or thing that they had to wear the the appropriate clothing for um, the high priesthood, uh, he kept that um, mm. as all the the prefects did. Um, all of this is a power play, right? Uh, we are Rome. Um, you may think that you're in charge, but you're not. Um, we can do whatever we want in your sacred places. Um, we can take your money, we can take mm-hmm, your farm, mm-hmm. we can take your life, we can take your dignity. Um, you have no king um, but Rome. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. So this is a warning. There's there's other people being crucified, and yes. they have you know they don't have king of the Jews. They have other things right. um, that they were they were charged with, and mm-hmm. so they don't have that sign. But right, Daryl, we think about the two people who were crucified with Jesus. One of them was a thief who said to Jesus, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." Mm-hmm. Now, as a Jewish person who sees that sign on the cross. What is he thinking about when Jesus comes into his kingdom? How much did he understand, do you think, to say something like that to Jesus on the cross? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how much I can understand someone hanging on a cross next to Jesus in that time, but probably if he has a normal Jewish expectation, he's expecting that in the end when the judgment comes and the righteous are vindicated, uh, he's asking Jesus to accept him in among the righteous vindication at the end. So that Jesus' reply, which mm-hmm. says, today you'll be with me in paradise, is a double surprise. Um, one, that there is a kingdom that is going to be experienced uh, in the near term, and two, that it's even going to happen immediately, um, that there is a sense of presence that's going on. So there's this recognition, which actually also relates to the resurrection, interestingly enough. The, I, I tell people if Christianity had been built strictly off of Judaism without any historical intervention, then you could have preached Jesus as being raised at the end of history and running the kingdom when the kingdom comes at the end. Mm -hmm. That would have been the very Jewish way to do it. Hmm. But you have a Jesus who's raised in the midst of history three days after his death. What creates, and this is this language comes from a variety of people like Tom Wright and Larry Hurtado, what creates the mutation Mm -hmm. in the resurrection belief that says we're going to get a resurrection in the midst of history even though the mass resurrection of people comes at the end? Um, What created that adjustment? And, um, you know, what Christians will argue is, well, it was the events tied to Jesus. It was he was mm-hmm. raised on the third day. Well, this idea that he is, uh, that today you'll be with me in paradise, is another signal that this transition between death, out of death, into life, into eternal life, really, mm-hmm. uh, is something that happens in the midst of this history, even though there are steps of it that are to, to be completed later. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, we, we could go into this uh, for, for quite some time. I, I want to get to the uh, the empty tomb here in a moment. But before we go there, Daryl, briefly, if you could talk to us about some of the cultural sensitivities surrounding burial in a tomb f uh, versus letting Jesus' body be thrown into a pit like so many other crucified bodies. Talk to us a little bit. Yeah, some scholars just say, well, we actually don't know where Jesus was buried and he was, you know, his body was left to rot or whatever. Um, uh, actually, the description that we get of Jesus Jesus being buried in in a family tomb for Joseph of Arimathea, who's not a family member, fits uh, Jewish Mishnaic teaching, which says that if someone accused of a felony and executed for a felony cannot be buried in a family tomb. So this fits the cultural background, which is why, remember, I don't know, this is now more than a decade ago, there was this dispute about whether Jesus' family tomb had been found and whether the ossuary bones of Jesus might be there as a way of undercutting mm -hmm. the idea that there was an mm -hmm. tomb. And um, that, that doesn't work, at least with the testimony of the sources that we have, because Jesus was never buried in a family tomb. He was never put next to James. Uh, or perhaps a better way to say it is James was never put next to him. Yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. uh, if there's an empty tomb, there's no ossuary and bone, no, no ossuary that Jesus' bones were ever put in because he was raised from the dead. Uh, and, and so you've got a little uh, attendance problem. I'll just refer to it that's going on. Uh, but um, anyway, yeah. so so that's the background. Is that is that a, a felon would not be buried in in a family tomb and that's exactly what we see joseph arimathea takes care of the body out of the goodness and kindness of his heart uh -huh. uh, and places him in a tomb that he provides mm -hmm. well as they say it's friday but sundays are coming that's right. uh, super early in the morning as i've said on another show mm -hmm. the uh women got up super duper mm -hmm. early in the morning but what they didn't know is mm -hmm. that jesus already got up earlier than them mm. so I want to talk to you, Terry, about these women who went to the empty tomb. They were the first to discover the empty tomb. But in John 24, we read that when the women told the disciples what they saw, it says they did not believe the women because their uh -huh. words seemed to them like nonsense. And then Peter went to go check it out himself. Uh -huh. What did most Jewish men think about the testimony of women in this context? Right. I mean, from from what we can tell, um, women's testimony was not valued very highly. Um, you know, it, it seems like maybe for certain things, like I guess things that women would be experts on, you know, if it was experts on um, women's purity or other things that were seen as the realm of women, um, they might be called upon as witnesses or their testimony might be more valued. Uh, but in general, um, as sad as it is to say, uh, the testimony of women was not seen as as valuable or mm -hmm. as reliable as the testimony of men. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, that that kind of fits the context there. Yeah. Um, and so certainly what they were saying probably seemed outlandish too. Um, whether it had been men or women, I think Peter would have been like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that they were women certainly didn't help. Right. He went to go check it out yeah. himself. And then when he got there, he was trying to figure out what might have happened. Like the women mm -hmm. just told you what happened, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Daryl, when some Christian apologists talk about the women witnesses, they make the point that the testimony of women wasn't well respected in the Jewish culture, like Terry just said. Mm -hmm. But a few of them have said that women couldn't testify in court at all. 
Now, is that true? Talk to us a little bit about how... There are a um, couple of, uh, generally speaking, it's true, but there are a couple of exceptions, uh, Mm -hmm. in particular um, related to cases that involve sexual assault, a woman's Mm -hmm. testimony could be accepted. Um, The identification of a body of a family member, testimony of a woman could be Mm -hmm. used to identify someone who otherwise might go unidentified, that kind of thing. But it was very much the exception uh, rather than the rule, and that brings up the whole idea of who would create a story for an, uh, for an event that is unpopular, the idea of resurrection. Only Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. Sadducees didn't believe it. The Greeks didn't believe it. They believed mm-hmm. in immortality of the soul if they thought that there was an afterlife at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So, you know, I, I, I tell people, imagine this in your mind. You're in the meeting on Saturday after the crucifixion, and you're having the, 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 uh, the remnant meeting, the people who are left. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, how do we keep hope alive? Because our Messiah has been crucified. And someone raised their hand and said, I have a great idea. Uh, let's propose that Jesus raised from the dead, and let's put forward as our best witnesses for this a group of women who went to the tomb and found it empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got an unpopular idea being witnessed to by people who generally culturally don't count as witnesses, and that's we're gonna, how mm-hmm. we're going to sell this difficult idea to the world and keep hope alive. Not mm-hmm. happening, okay? Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. not happening. So it shows that the event doesn't give the signs of being created, okay? The women are in the mm-hmm. event and the empty tomb is in the event because something happened that caused the women to see the tomb uh-huh. is empty. Luke says when the report of the women came to the leaders that they thought they were telling a, a, a fable, that they were, uh-huh. you know, I, I tease people that we had the creation of a new disease on this day in the minds of the Twelve, and that is post-crucifixion syndrome, uh-huh. okay? PCS, which uh-huh. basically is you're mourning, it's been a couple of tough days, you know, you want something good to happen, so you've conjured up in your mind that this has taken place, and we don't believe you. And the other point I like to make is, the, the the 12, or at least the remainder of the 12, the 11, were acting very, in very modernist terms in mm-hmm. terms of this proposal as well. Um, and so they were doubting, which is another indication this would be unlikely to be created because this makes your leaders look pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, you know? Right. They don't believe that the Son of God is raised from the dead. Right. Uh, put, that, put that together in your, in hmm. your thinking. So... Um, so all of this is pointing to the fact that the empty tomb and the resurrection looks like it's the real deal, and uh, mm-hmm. and that that's the best explanation for us. Which brings us back to the question of the ark we raised earlier, which is that Jesus is only guilty of sedition, and his claim is only blasphemy if what he is claiming is not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The empty tomb is God's vote in that dispute, and now I'm going to put a real tricky math question in front of you. You have two options in front of you, exaltation and blasphemy. Um, the tomb goes empty, and that's God's vote. The best I can tell, two minus one equals one. 
You take two options, you take one off the table, you only got one option left. That option's exaltation, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what we see in the resurrection story. And I tell people that Easter is important not just because it shows that there's life after death, which is what we tend to focus on on Easter. Mm -hmm. Easter is important because it is the vindication of Jesus and who he claims to be, so mm -hmm. he can do everything that is promised that he will do as a result. And that really is the story of Easter. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you who are watching or listening to this, you can read more about this uh, in a note that Daryl wrote, a note on women as witnesses and the empty tomb resurrection accounts in a book called Raised on the Third Day, which are a series of essays in order of uh, in honor of Gary Habermas. And we'll put some huh. we'll put a link to uh, that in the show notes for you. Okay. Now, Terry, I did my dissertation work on Jesus claims to possess divine authority and how he claimed oh. to possess authority on earth to forgive sins in Mark 2. Yeah and in heaven to judge sins in Mark 14, which I say is a merism for all of reality. So he's claiming mm. total authority here. But yeah. I remember you spoke at DTS Chapel on how Jesus gave us a countercultural example of how he used authority in a way that was serving other people. Mm -hmm. Unpack that idea for us. Right. Yeah. So um, if I can recall, um, that was, I was looking at Mark 10, um 40 through 45 and he's talking to the disciples and he specifically says um i don't think i can quote it verbatim but he, he's saying uh look at the gentile rulers and let's he says let's compare how they rule um and so what i did with that was then i said okay well let's look in mark and let's see are there any gentile rulers in mark and there are two um, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate. And there are two instances in Mark where you see them ruling. And both of those are, um, uh, one is Pilate in the trial of Jesus, and the other is Herod Antipas when he executes John the Baptist. And in both of those instances, you have these two very powerful men, um, uh, and they clearly know that the man in front of them is innocent, uh, not deserving of execution. Um, and both of them clearly choose uh, to preserve their own power, position, uh, status um, over any sense of integrity um, or justice. Um, so they use their influence for their own selves rather than uh, using the power or influence that they have to serve uh, the people um, underneath them, which would be the men standing in front of them who are about to die. Mm. Um, and so, and then right after that, Jesus says, not so among you. Um, uh, we are called, called to serve like the son of man. Um, who came uh, uh, to serve and not be served. Hmm. Um, and I found that just really powerful to look mm -hmm. at that and then compare that to the only, he says, no, you don't want to be like the Gentile rulers, that in the community that I am creating, um, that um, basically those of you who are going to lead it and start it and be, and be the ones who are, are going to start this community, uh, that your call is to be servants. Um, and not be like these Gentile rulers. And then you had these two examples. Mm -hmm. um, and so that the whole point is um, to serve and not use whatever you have just to 
get more power for yourself or get more influence for yourself, uh, that your influence is to be to help those um, who need it, the ones who are right in front of you who need help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so Pilot and Herod Antipas are these um, perfect foils of who we're not supposed to be. Um, and those, the stories of, of Pilate, if you, you know, we always look at the, um, the trial of Jesus and we should look at the trial of Jesus and really focus on the Easter story and Jesus is the character, but I think it's okay then to go and look at other characters like Pilate and go, what, what's his motivation? Um, and what's he doing in that story? Um, and the selfishness and the self-preservation of Pilate, um, in that story and Herod Antipas, um, and the story in Mark and then in, in Luke also, when you add mm-hmm. the other trial, it's um, shocking wow. um, to be the most powerful people in the stories and all they're concerned about is self-preservation. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome to think yeah. about. And if you're listening or watching to this, if you want to hear more about this, you can go to DTS Voice and search for a presentation. It's called, But It Is Not So Among You, Jesus and Power in Mark's Gospel. And we'll drop a link on the DTS Voice page for this episode so that you can check it out as well. Yeah. Well, Daryl, as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on how this uh, understanding the Jewish culture, the, the cultural background of this whole passion, we can help us better engage with the Easter celebration this this Easter time. The background shows what's at stake, and we've talked about what's at stake. It's really a choice. The judgment that's the event triggers is two are two options: um, blasphemy on the one hand and exaltation on the other. It's like two trains on a single train track heading in opposite directions, and when they collide, uh, the collision results in a resurrection which removes the idea that blasphemy is present and makes Mm -hmm. clear that God is vindicated, Jesus, it's God who raises Jesus from the dead and brings him to his right hand as he predicted in Psalm 110, um, gives him the authority of the Son of Man and one day he will return riding on the clouds, exercising judgment authority because we're all accountable to the living God. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, Easter is about that. Easter is about the idea there is a life after death, there is a vindicated Jesus, there is an accountability that we have to God that we all must face up to one day, whether we recognize it or not. The issue won't be, the issue then won't be what our perception of reality is. The issue then will be the real God who sits before us and ask, what have you done? Uh, so so that's, that's an important part, and what Christians offer on that day is a hope, a hope of restoration, a hope of life out of death, a hope mm-hmm. of a new life that uh, Christ makes possible because he is who he claimed to be, mm-hmm. and God showed who he was by the events of that last week. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It's it's amazing to think about that, and it, it never gets old to just come back to it every every Easter time. And in fact, uh, every day we should be reminded of mm. of just who Jesus is and how much uh, He means to us and what God has provided through Him. Mm. And uh, we thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Daryl. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. And thank you, Terry, for joining us as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. And we thank you for joining us here on The Table Podcast today. I'm Dr. Mikhail Del Rosario, and we hope that you'll join us again next time on The Table as we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.